episode 89 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 11th of May 2020. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Good evening. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Graham, you sound rested. Presumably you uh, had a nice celebration on Friday of Victory Over Europe Day. <laughs> yeah, I did, and celebrating the success that we're having outside the EU. Yeah, I'm feeling much better, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... We're going to get into some news and some other stuff, but first, another plug for my two relatively new shows. One, The New Show, which is at the new show. That's with Daniel Foray and Popey. It uh, may be familiar to some people, the format at least. And the other is Two and a Half Admins, which is at 2.5admins.com. And that is with Jim Salter and Alan Jude, where we talk about ZFS, that sort of thing admin stuff and i try and learn a little bit i'm the half in there so do check them out i'll put links in the show notes so let's do some news then and the first is that slash e slash i don't know how you say that partners with fairphone this is on the fairphone 3 which has been out for a little while but now it's available with this e os which is essentially a fork or it's based on lineage but with Micro-G, so it has location services without having to have the Google bullshit. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know much about it, but it seems like a decent partnership. I know that, I, it's a terrible name, E, but it was founded by Gal Duval, wasn't it? And the guy that created Mandrake and then Mandriva and Ulteo. Um, and I I like Gal a lot, um, and I think um, he's kind of, trustworthy i suppose as a character for trying to say what he doing what he says he'll do and he's been trying to create a free and open source and open android operating an android based operating system for quite some time so it sounds like a good partnership i've always been skeptical because it is just lineage with micro g isn't it mm, yeah and i guess from his perspective or from their perspective it's because it's a com- it is a it is a compromise it's a compromise compared to the one um Phelan is not prepared to make and i understand that but also loads of people just need some access to just those those apps so it gives them that at least it's interesting that fairphone has joined because the previous phones they were offering the previous hardware they were offering were right refurbed um galaxy s whatever f's nines i think and s8s so it's nice to see a more open platform for their open source os they're charging a premium of 30 euros for this normally it's 450 whereas with e installed it's 479.90 why not just make it 480 but whatever is it really worth that extra 30 euros when you could just flash it yourself? I suppose having it pre-installed makes it easier for some people, but surely if you care enough to want to use a Google-free device, you can work out how to flash uh, Lineage or E yourself, can't you? I don't know. I think the first time you flash a phone, figuring out what all the bits are and why you need different bits of software to control the various hardware manufacturers uh bootable blobs and stuff i think if you could pay somebody 30 euro to guarantee that you're going to not end up with a brick i think i would take that if i was doing it for the very first time like it might be a good sort of stepping stone for people to get into the the rom community somewhat i suppose so it's just for me it's quite easy now to do it but i suppose when you first get into it it is a little bit tricky and if you flash the wrong recovery yes nice to bring that up thank you <laughs> well 
I, I know someone who had a Huawei seven inch phone. This was before massive phones were even a, a big thing in the West. And he managed to flash the wrong recovery and hard brick it. He had to send it back to China to get it fixed. So he would be the kind of target audience, I suppose, the kind of fuckwits who do stuff like that. One plus three and three T. I didn't realize they were separate. They're not anymore. Fucking shut up, <laughs> will you? <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily about the out-of-pocket expense for the, the end user or protecting the end user from themselves, as it were. It's about offering a bit more help to those people it's it's your you're offering you know sponsorship of the project as well as getting mm, the phone and i think that's a really good way of open source projects generating a bit of income for themselves um from their loyal fan base of people who want to support them by giving them uh, hardware they want to use and the opportunity to pay a little bit more money to help the project i i think it's a nice way of doing it yeah, fair enough. All right, well, related is that PostMarket OS now boots on over 200 Linux phones and tablets, albeit with differing levels of success and uh, maturity. But it's pretty cool that PostMarket OS, which has been around for a while now, and the, the aim is to support hardware for a long time and not just abandon it. And we've seen it available for the Pine phone. That's where I've tried it out. And it is a decent, proper GNU slash Linux base to run on phones. And so the chances are, if you're not using Ubuntu Touch on a Linux phone, you're pretty much going to be using something based on PostMarket or maybe Debian. Yeah, I think this is really cool. It's the equivalent of, um, you know, finding those old phones in the drawer that you used to have and the increasing likelihood that you'll be able to stick something on it and, and play with it just to get a feel for how it works. Um, and it's really nice that it sports. I, 200 phones it's incredible and looking at the list it really goes way back like the nokia 2720 flip yeah it doesn't support my nokia uh n700 it does support the 900 which isn't much mm. older or younger yeah and the n9 as well which i think was relatively old as well yeah that was back when nokia were playing with its own version of android i remember and then decided not to but then there's some pretty modern ones on there as well like some of the OnePlus phones, like my one, the 3T, and even the 5T and the 6. And the original OnePlus One, which is a great phone still. I can't believe how... I looked up how much I paid for it, and it was like 200 and something quid back in the day. And now the OnePlus 8 whatever Pro is fucking nearly a grand or something. It's uh, funny how things have changed there. But um, yes, it's good, good to see that they are trucking along. And so I thought it was worth a quick mention. Oh, uh, out of interest, it does run on the Meizu Pro 5, uh, which is one of the Ubuntu phones, uh, which I tried to put, um, oh, now what was it? React OS, I think it was, that I stuck on there. Um, <laughs> and I I had oh, all manner of trouble, so I think I might reflash it and, and give this a go. Surely it can't be React OS. That's like the, the Windows, the open source Windows. Uh... I love the way Will plays those keyboard sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Not React OS, Resurrection Remix, sorry. Ah, oh, right, that's quite different. Yeah, that's just a, a AOSP-based ROM, yeah. <laughs> Try to run IIS on your phone. <laughs> well, yeah, give it a go and let us know how, how you get on. All right, so Salt Stack Attack. This was quite an embarrassment for Lineage OS and Ghost, the blogging platform, they got pwned 
over the last week or so by not patching their shit. Yes, very naughty. And not only that, but kind of poor security practice, really. I don't think SaltSax ever said you should have your Saltmaster out to the internet. And uh, it seems quite a lot of people have uh, a lot of servers sitting out and they got owned due to two flaws that cropped up in the last couple of weeks. I was reading through exactly what this flaw is, and it just sort of ticks every box of what you don't want it to be, like root access, just every fucking thing that yeah. could go wrong. Full file system access on the system that pushes configs and changes to all the other minions that are connected to it. It's great. What was the problem with SaltStack? What was the initial vulnerability that let people in? Well, according to F-Secure, their description of it is, the vulnerabilities described in this advisory allow an attacker who can connect to the request server port to bypass all authentication and authorization controls and publish arbitrary control messages, read and write files anywhere on the master server file system, and steal the secret keys to authenticate <laughs> the master as root. The impact Boy. is full remote command execution as root on both the master and all the minions connected to it. So it's just the worst possible vulnerability you can imagine but you do wonder who's been using this to do what and you know that may come out over the next few weeks and months but either way it's a bit of an embarrassment for a lot of people yeah probably a good way of building a contact tracing app <laughs> <laughs> oh, i've been reading about that oh, just i just don't even with that so good news for people with raspberry Pis who are into photography there's now the high-quality camera available. So you can still get the old camera and the, the Pine Noir and all that, but this is a more expensive one with interchangeable lenses, which I don't know much about photography, but my understanding is you can put professional lenses on this. Yeah, so this one has a built-in infrared filter on it, and you can't get a non-infrared filter, and apparently mm. they're not going to build one. Can you peel it off? Uh, yeah, I guess you could. <laughs> Something like this would be really good for astrophotography. Yeah, exactly. That and a security camera of unimaginable ability. You could really could press enhance on this one. <laughs> Especially as you can, you know, get any CS mount lens on there and, yeah. and, and do whatever you want with it. It is quite exciting in that way. And especially like stuff like low light and, and astrophotography. You don't really need a, a huge number of megapixels. You just need, you know, a wide, a big sensor, which this is, and a lot of time. Did you see the comparison between the camera module V2, which is the old one that's still available, the cheap one, and then this one? It's like night and day, the two pictures of a Raspberry Pi. It's, it's more expensive. I mean, this is $50 for just the camera. And then they've got a couple of lenses for either $25 or $50 or you can just add lenses that you already have. So someone who's already into photography, this seems like a very good way to automate God knows what. I mean, it's, the possibilities are endless with it. Yeah, it's a really nice addition, considering it's so well integrated with the Pi at a hardware level and a software level. Um, my big question is, if they release another camera module, what are they going to call it? If this is the high-quality camera, what's the next one going to be? Super high-quality. The best. <laughs> So RetroPi 4.6 has been released with Raspberry Pi 4 support. This was a couple of weeks ago now, but I thought it was worth a quick mention while we're on the topic. And now that it supports the Raspberry Pi 4, you would imagine that some of the more difficult emulators will run more smoothly on it then. Yeah, I saw reports of uh, PlayStation 1 being emulated, which 
I, well, in my opinion, shouldn't be classed as retro, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, isn't it? It's like two decades. I think we've got to be well, <laughs> just sharp, you. That's it, it not that long ago, but um, yeah, the, the fact that you can re- you can emulate a PS One and presumably a, uh, a Pi Four can go way beyond that now. It's um, it's quite amazing. It really helps uh, understand how the power of computers is just getting more and more all the time. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm hearing lots of, I think as people starting to use the Pi 4, I've heard lots of good stories about how powerful people are finding it when they're starting to build stuff for it and starting to actually use it. And I'm not getting too audio geeky about it, but there's lots of people that are now using it. It's like <laughs> a, like an audio processing for, for guitars, for like effect pedal chains and mm. people building add-ons like that for it because it's just so much more capable. That's pretty cool. I, I must say, I did actually try an em- a few emulators on a Pi 4, but it was an open elect box. So I imagine this is even better than that. But uh, my God, it was a good fun to play Mario Kart again after mm. a disturbing amount of time. Was that on Dolphin? I don't know, to be quite honest. I just came in, saw it on the TV. I was like, what? Mm. <laughs> yeah, Dolphin emulator. I think that's a, a GameCube and possibly Wii emulator. I have. I would like to try that on the Pi 4, although I, I suspect it will struggle. Um, that's, that's quite hardcore, but I'm going to give it a go. Because you've got a Pi 4 now then. Yes, and you're right. It is incredibly impressive. Um, it when when you well, I've used it for terminal stuff, and I couldn't tell the difference between that and my full-on Intel server. Um, some of the older pies that you SSH in and you open up like VI or or Nano or something, and you scroll up and down through a text file, and it really chugs along. But this thing just oh, it just feels like a a real computer. What are you doing about cooling though? Uh, taking the lid off. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I found it got so hot and then when i got my case with the heat sinks and the fan it's been absolutely brilliant it's well worth it i think although it's really noisy so maybe the compromise is just a big heat sink or whatever okay this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. go to do.co slash lnl and you can get 50 dollars credit with 30 days to use it DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets as they call them with full root access in data centers all around the world with super fast networking and super fast SSDs. You can use a distro like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CentOS or FreeBSD or you can even upload your own custom image. Or you can use their one-click apps like Basic Lamp and Lampstacks, WordPress, Discourse or GitLab. I've been using DigitalOcean for years now, and in that time, they've added tons of new features, things like managed databases and Kubernetes, object storage, and recently, virtual private cloud, which allows you to create multiple private networks for your account or team. The droplets start from as little as $5 a month, but you can scale them all the way up to 192 gigabytes of RAM with 32 CPU cores and 12 terabytes of storage, but you can add block storage or object storage as you need it. And if you need particularly high amounts of RAM or CPU, they have droplets optimized for that too. So go to do.co slash LNL and get your $50 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. All right, well, the first I heard of this next one is when Graham posted it in our private chat and said, well, that's it, Keybase is dead then. Yeah, so, I mean, I've been a, a user of Keybase io for a long time but it basically started out as a way of verifying your public keys to people who don't personally know your identity you know the kind of in the back in the very old days people would go to key swapping parties where you'd if you you didn't know people too well you'd kind of 
see them and you'd get their public key. So if you want to send them an encrypted email or something like that, you could do that. Key swapping parties, isn't that what uh, middle-aged people do <laughs> with a bowl of keys or something? Well, it, yeah, that is what we do now but before. <laughs> so keybase.io was like, that is a service, I guess. <laughs> Swinging as a service. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And so to help that, you can do it on Zoom. <laughs> That's my understanding of it anyway. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that Keybase grew beyond that into all sorts of encrypted stuff, and Zoom needs encryption. And so they've acquired the team. And I don't know what it means for Keybase, because they're going to be working bloody hard integrating uh, end-to-end encryption into Zoom, which is a very tricky challenge given how many devices Zoom sports and web chat and phoning in and stuff. So, yeah, good luck with uh, any sort of progress with Keybase. Although I don't know, it's not something that I'd really used. I was aware of it, but has anyone ever used any of the messaging and stuff that they offer? Yeah, I have used it. And quite a few people that I know use it. Um, the nice thing is that you could, it was a messaging platform and you could do it like client to client encrypted because you use the other person's um, public key. Um, and it, I think I, it's maybe not that interesting, but it raises, I think it really is an important point that something like Keybase.io, which is a really good idea, should be kind of implemented by the community and not be kind of forced into this startup mentality of making billions or being worth billions to be useful. Um, because I think this is going to be the end result. And I think really this is the end of Keybase as it was originally envisaged. Sounds like a Linux Foundation-like project that should be there. Yeah, I mean, it's the age-old problem of encrypted communication. How do we solve it? I mean, Signal, actually, if you've been tracking that, has been making great improvements recently um, with group chats, and that does peer-to-peer encrypted uh, messaging, and it's open source too. But ultimately, this is going to be good for humanity, isn't it? Because so many people are using Zoom, albeit they might be uh, fudging the numbers a little bit. Turns out it wasn't 300 million users. It was 300 million participants per day or whatever, which is uh, slightly different if you do 10 fucking meetings a day. But anyway, there are a hell of a lot of people using Zoom. And if it's going to end up being end-to-end encrypted as a result of this, then that's surely better than where we are now. Obviously, it'd be better if people were using someone open source like Jitsi or whatever. But if they're going to use Zoom, at least have it be encrypted. Yeah, and I've heard some terrible stories, even local to me, where um, usurpers have joined into like classes yeah. um, of, with kids and said such terrible things. So it really sounds to me that Zoom have got, I don't know if you've got to be careful, but the, I mean, it sounds to me like they've got some real serious infrastructural problems with their security. Um, and I don't suppose the key-based IO team are that big. They certainly have the know-how and to be able to build an encrypted platform, but whether it's going to be big enough or whether they can make a big enough change into something like Zoom, which is now so huge and important. I don't know. It sounds like a big challenge. I'd buy a bigger company, I think. Well, they don't want to spend too much, do they, right now? No one does, just in case. But maybe it was the right expertise that they needed because yeah. it's it's a unique challenge. And I don't think there was any off-the-shelf company that could have solved it. So they've just gone for the best that's available by the sounds of things. Yeah, I think that's probably a, it's a canny move because uh, you know I'm sure the keybase.io people know what they're doing. Um, and you're right. If it, I, I don't think it'll end up in end-to-end encryption on Zoom, it'll probably end up with you know script kiddies not being able to join other kiddies while they're learning about geography. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Scholarpack. 
Scholarpack is the third largest supplier of management information systems for schools in the UK, and they are in 10% of England's primary schools. They're part of the Key Group, which is in 50% of the UK schools, and annually 98% of UK schools use at least one of their services. Scholarpack have some amazing problems to solve. At 9am, they have to cope with 65,000 requests per second, but overnight, it's only about 30 requests per second. During the recent school closures, Scholarpack worked with the Department for Education and provided features to allow schools to cope with the changing requirements within hours of them being announced. Scholarpack has various job vacancies, including junior DevOps roles, so if you're in the Lincoln area of the UK, check out scholarpack.com slash LNL. That's scholarpack.com slash LNL. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated, especially to me these days. If you want to join them, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember that if you support us for $5 or more on Patreon, you can get an ad-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Now, we had mentioned before about and ask us anything sensible thread that we've got going on Patreon. And anyone at any tier can ask us that. And it was originally planned that we were going to do a Late Night Linux extra episode on it. But we thought, why not just put some of those questions in the main show? And so we might do one or two an episode going forward. We'll see how it all works out. So the first one from W. Shah is, do you ever miss doing feedback on the show? Or do you get enough of that from Twitter and Telegram? Well, funny you should mention that. We got an email from Ian that I thought was pretty interesting and that we should have a chat about. So let me read a bit of it from Ian. You said that GitLab is open source on your most recent show. The problem is that it's mostly not open source. Most people know GitLab from GitLab.com, which is the non-free version. It's a similar situation with Android, which most people know from phones that they buy in shops, which is a non-free version having all of the non-free apps and drivers and firmware and freedom problems. Whenever we call Android or GitLab open source, we mislead people and hold back the free software community from recognizing a problem we need to continue working on to solve. And then he went on about how loads of GitLab.com is proprietary, including important things like spam protection, and that their business model is selling non-free software and services running non-free code, and the free version is meant to be trialware. Clearly, this is someone who is on the free software side of things rather than open source, but I think the point is valid, that it's easy to say, oh, well, GitLab, you can host that yourself, it's open source, but really, some of the real key features that you need are not in that open source version. This is a really good point, um, and it's good of Ian to get in touch to like call us on it or call me on it. I think because I, I said at the time with GitLab being open source, and I think it's very difficult when we talk about lots of different software all the time, and we forget things like this very easily. And it's true, um, you know, GitLab's business model is built upon its its software as a service portal to to what it does, um, and it's important to make that distinction. And it's been this way for a long time, and I think. And as I've mentioned before, I think it's difficult. I don't know what we have to do to to make this distinction without sounding overly pedantic or, or making it boring. Um, and that, I think, is the real challenge um, because it offers so much convenience as well. <laughs> but take Android as the example there. Isn't it sort of good enough that we've got 
the Android open source project, which you can build things like Lineage and E from. And, you know, should we not be grateful for it? And should we not be grateful that GitLab is even slightly open source and you can run your own instance and yeah, you might have spam problems and some of the features are missing, but you could always add them to it potentially. And, you know, it's better to have something rather than nothing. And if it takes them having a non-free proprietary version that they're monetizing to make it possible to have an open source version, then surely that's better than not. I think you might be looking at it the wrong way around. I think Google was very lucky to be able to take essentially an OS kernel utilities compilers and build a product that they're able to make a lot of money from. And the sort of contract they got into, and that was the fact that it was an open source load of code that they had to give back. Now, I don't think they would have necessarily given that back. Was it BSD? Maybe they would have. I'm not sure. But I think we shouldn't always look at it the other way around where, you know, we're so lucky that large company X is making money from work that a lot of open source developers have put a lot of work and time into or free software developers. And I think you should always try and look at a project to see, can it be fully run by yourself? You don't have to do it, but I think you should always look at a project and say, if they go away, can I survive without them? I think that, well, I don't think, I know, uh, software development costs money and software developers cost money. They, they've got mortgages to pay. They've got families to support. But th- there needs to be money in the equation here. And someone somewhere has got to, uh, to generate that. And that is going to be the business that is sponsoring that project. So I, money, I, I feel like money has to come into play here. And until we've got a better way of doing it, then I think that commercial sponsorship of open source projects where there is a paid-for version and there is a free version is a pretty good model. Um, We've got things like Patreon where people can support their projects, but those, I don't know, they don't really seem to be making these these very long sustaining projects if you're reliant on people through the good of their heart sponsoring your project then you know sooner or later the new hotness will come along and they will move over to that and your project will be doomed so i think having uh, corporate customers locked in uh, i use that word poorly but you know invested in your platform and willing to pay out year on year keeps your platform alive and keeps that project alive a hundred percent. I I'm, I don't disagree at all with what you're saying. Um, and it's so difficult to make a business around even things that are predominantly open source. And I don't know if there's an easy answer for it because, you know, it has to be this way. It has to be, if that's the way that GitLab, GitLab funds itself, that's the way it has to fund itself. I guess it's just important to sometimes make the distinction that the entire product may not be in, in mm. frustrating mm. ways, you know, like, like Android, for example. And it's, and it's important to perhaps say that Android's becoming increasingly closed source with more and yeah, more and more of what Google doing becoming private. But I agree also with what you're saying, Joe, that I've always thought that there's probably enough open source in Android. Um, without knowing the complexities of turning that into a phone operating system, it, it's, you know, it's more than we had maybe in the early 90s when Linux was created from scratch, but then the hardware was more open then. Well, thanks for writing in, Ian. It's certainly food for thought. And um, for the original AMA question, uh, yes, kind of do miss doing feedback to some extent. So maybe we'll do it from time to time going forward. Uh, LateNightLinux.com slash contact if you want to get in touch. So KDE Corner then, push to the end of the show. 
as some people like it, I think. Yeah, you can all press stop now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we want people to listen to the whole thing. Anyway, so the first one, uh, Academy have got a call for proposals. This is going to be a virtual Academy this year, of course. Yeah, it is. It's from Friday the 4th to the 11th of September 2020, and they would like people to write in with proposal talks. Um, the community goals this year, consistency, the apps and Wayland. Consistency with a K. Oops. I mean, is there any other way to spell it? <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I mean, take a look at the list and go through. And if you've got a talk, submit it. Otherwise, uh, look forward to the videos afterwards. All right. So Ubuntu Studio have decided to make a dreadful, dreadful mistake mm-hmm. and move away from XFCE to Plasma. I think you find correct, no, correct no, wrong, decision. Wrong. No, I, I do see the logic for it. They um, announced it when they released uh, 20 or 4, and then they've done a follow-up blog post kind of explaining it, and it does make sense to me, really. A, a lot of credit to the apps, I think, really. Um, there's some really powerful apps there, and... I think the the resources of XFC are pretty close to Plasma if you don't run with a couple of the features on it. And mm. yeah, I think it's it's a far more supported and developed and featureful and um <laughs> yeah, the the drawing tablet support and um, a lot of the things like Krita and you know the the Caden Live and stuff like that make more sense on a Plasma desktop. So I can see the argument for it. And like they say, they were never aimed at low end hardware. They were originally using GNOME two and just didn't like the sh- the change to Unity, and so that's why they ended up on XFC sort of just by default, really. Whereas now it kind of makes sense. They want to be a good looking, modern, feature rich. OS that gives you all the creative tools. So I, I can see the argument. It does make me a little bit sad, but you know, you can always take Zubuntu and install all the Ubuntu Studio stuff on top of it if you want. So it's ultimately not a massive change for people who want to stay on uh, XFCE. And just a quick one that I put in, I spotted a blog post this week about an NVIDIA Shield K1 tablet which was a gaming tablet that came out uh, 2014-2015-ish, and someone has managed to get proper desktop plasma running on it, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, it does look cool. I've got a Nexus 10 that I barely use. It'd be really nice to be able to put something like that on that. Um, So I guess if anyone's interested, there are detailed instructions over on the... uh, on this website, which we'll leave in the podcast notes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very nice. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with hopefully some of your Ask Us Anything sensible questions and maybe some news and who knows what else. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phantom. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Mm-hmm.